Welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Ignacio Taboada to discuss the field of astrophysics and his focus on neutrinos and gamma rays. To be honest, I was a bit nervous about our conversation because I don't know much about astrophysics and it can be intimidating. But I think he did a good job of explaining his work simply enough for someone like me and hopefully you to understand. Learning about cosmic rays and supernovas is really fascinating to me. I probably say wow like a million times during the episode. Just thinking about everything out there in space, all these particles and energies that we don't know much about, it's just mind-blowing. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome Dr. Taboada. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You got a PhD in physics and astronomy at the University of Pennsylvania. So why did you decide to do that at the time? Was it common or did you have a passion for astrophysics? More or less since then, I knew I wanted to do physics or, or astrophysics. And uh, I had a relative and who was also a physicist, and I asked him, what is, should I do to you know, become a physicist? And he said, well, you can study here in Venezuela, your undergrad, but you should, you should go abroad, probably to the U.S. to, to do a Ph.D., and that's pretty much what I did. Nice. And so now you're an associate professor at Georgia Tech, and you have your own lab. So can you just tell me a little bit about the work that you do there? I do particle astrophysics, which is a very new branch of astrophysics. The idea of astrophysics is understanding the cosmos, how it works. And um, particle astrophysics uses things that are not light to study the cosmos. Um, I use uh, neutrinos in particular, which are subatomic particles, to look for astrophysical objects and try to understand them better. And uh, um, the reason we do that is is um, similar to why you want to study things with uh, things that are different than visible light. You just, when you have X-rays, then all of a sudden you're able to study the inside of a person, and you're obtaining information that would not be available only with your eyes. Uh, for exactly the same reason, you want to use any available uh, information that you have about astrophysical objects. And we want to do now astronomy using neutrinos. And uh, I'm, a large, I'm a member of a large collaboration called IceCube. We're about uh, 300 people. And uh, we have a neutrino telescope that is operating at, in, in Antarctica. And so I also know you work with cosmic rays. You want to understand the source of these cosmic rays. Is that correct? That's correct. The neutrinos, the origin of neutrinos and the origin of cosmic rays, we know that they're linked. We suspect that every single source of cosmic rays is going to be a neutrino source and vice versa in the universe. And that can be described fairly easily with the particle physics knowledge we have all the way back to the 50s and 60s. The cosmic rays are charged particles. They're protons or helium or lithium atoms or a nuclei, actually, any, any nucleus, um, and it arrives at Earth from all directions. Now, these, these nuclei, because they are charged particles, they do not travel in a straight line. The galaxies fill with magnetic fields, and when you have a particle moving through a magnetic field, it will bend. And because you have the galaxy with magnetic fields pointing in all way and another, then you don't know where these cosmic rays are really coming from. You know that they're being produced somewhere in the galaxy, but you don't know where they're coming from. Neutrinos, on the other hand, are electrically neutral. They just travel in a straight line, just like light. And that means that if you see a point in the sky where many neutrinos are coming from, then you have found the source of neutrinos, and therefore you have also found a source of cosmic rays. 
And so why is it important for us to find the source of cosmic rays? What can that tell us about space? Um, I guess the most uh, basic answer would be curiosity. We want to describe everything that we see. This is, mm-hmm. this is basic science at its core. Um, it doesn't have a, a direct benefit to humanity uh, immediately. Um, when you do science over and over again, then you find that it ends up benefiting people anyway. That's sort of an indirect consequence so uh, we want to understand that because it is it is there, and we we don't know we don't know how that works, and we want to know how that works. So cosmic rays were originally discovered a hundred years ago uh, by a person that wanted to find out what is the origin of radiation, natural radioactivity mm-hmm. uh, around us. There's always a little bit of radioactivity, even in a clean environment like we are right now, um, everywhere. And uh, the idea was, well, maybe the radioactivity is coming from rocks that have a little radioactive material and you feel it, or maybe it's coming from somewhere else. So he got into a balloon, and the idea was that if, as you went up, the radiation would go down if it's coming from the surface of the planet, from mm-hmm. the rocks that are near you. But he found the exact opposite. As he went up, the radiation went up and up and up. Wow. And he didn't know what that was, and he called that cosmic rays. And uh, he called them cosmic because he said, well, if it's, you know, the atmosphere is shielding us from all that radiation, and, uh, and, you know, ever since we, want, we have wanted to know where these are, are, things are coming from. And it's not that we're clueless nowadays. This person, Victor Hess, got a Nobel Prize in '36 for this. Didn't know where the cosmic rays came from. Nowadays, we believe that uh, they're made um, in the remnants of supernova explosions. Okay, interesting. What are the types of techniques or procedures that you use in your lab, either to analyze the data or to actually collect the data? What we do in my group is mostly data analysis and uh, statistics, um, big data, uh, computer simulations, that sort of thing. There, there are many aspects to, to a complicated experiment like IceCube. Like, like I said, we're 300 people, wow. and that's because there's a lot of different things to do. Mm-hmm. And there are people that are more interested in the hardware operation. There are people that are more interested in the data analysis, and I'm more at the data analysis end. So... Um, IceCube, it, it collects a lot of information. IceCube is a telescope, right? It's a neutrino telescope. Neutrino telescope. Yeah, it's a neutrino, the collaboration I work on. It's a neutrino telescope, and uh, it, it collects a vast amount of, of data. I think it's about a terabyte per day. And uh, But astrophysical neutrinos, the ones that we think are coming from sources out there in the cosmos, we only get about 10 or 20 neutrinos like that every year. So we have to find these 10 or 20 events in, you know, 300, 400 terabytes of data. Wow. And uh, so that's a data analysis problem, and that's mm. a statistical problem. How do you identify the things that are really, really interesting? Can you tell me also more about the Hawk? So that's the other experiment I work on. Uh, Hawk is a, a very high-energy gamma-ray telescope. Um, gamma rays are just like light, except that our eyes cannot see them. Um similar to infrared or ultraviolet or x-rays. Um, the experimental techniques that you use to detect the very high-energy gamma rays are actually very similar to that that you use to detect neutrinos. It is a very natural match to have somebody working in those two experiments uh, simultaneously. And uh, not only that, is that objects that you expect to produce cosmic rays that should produce neutrinos should also produce gamma rays, very high-energy gamma rays. 
so if you have a neutrino source, in principle, you expect that source to also produce gamma rays and also produce cosmic rays. Gamma rays, just like neutrinos, do not have electrical charge. They travel in a straight line. So cosmic rays, you don't know where they're coming from. They're coming from everywhere. You have lost all the directional information. But neutrinos or gamma rays all point in the same direction. Um, I guess I guess a difference between neutrinos and gamma rays is that there are other ways to produce gamma rays that do not require cosmic rays. So we know nowadays of about a, a couple hundred different types of objects that are produced very high energy gamma rays, some in our galaxy, some outside of our galaxy. Um, however, many of them, most of them, are probably not cosmic ray sources. Only a handful of them will be cosmic ray sources. And so working with neutrinos and gamma rays together again, tells you more simply because you have more information. And how can you tell if the gamma ray is coming from the cosmic ray source or not? Um, that is a very hard question. <laughs> so um, there are cases that, that we know really, really well. Um, the archetypical uh, gamma ray source is uh, the Crab Nebula. Mm. Uh, the Crab Nebula is the result of a supernova explosion about a thousand years ago. Um, let me try to answer this simply. <laughs> You have a, a model for how things work. You're a physicist. You try to explain how things work, and that means that you have to have a description of what is happening. And the, having a description of what is happening is not enough. You have then to compare it to your observations. And if they match really well, then you say, well, you know, have found an explanation. And uh, we know that most sources in the sky produce very high-energy gamma rays um, in mechanisms that do not require cosmic rays simply because they can be described well without them. Uh, there are a few cases in which it's not so clear. Okay. Are we at the point where we're trying to create more models or are we at the point where we're just collecting data to compare to the models that we already have and just in general astrophysics, not specifically gamma rays? So that is an excellent question. Uh, I would say that astrophysics in general is, is uh, dominated by data. New data drives the field more than the models. Um, there they have been a few notable exceptions, people that have become really famous because they have predicted something or another and that has been observed. But usually it's the other way around. It's, oh, we don't have a clue what's going on here. <laughs> and let's try to explore it more and get more data and get more data. And only when you have enough information that you can actually make a model. Mm. Um, one of the greatest mysteries, this is not an area working, but one of the greatest mysteries we have right now is that over the past uh, decade, we have discovered something that is called fast radio bursts. And imagine like a millisecond-long, sharp emission of radio. And we believe that they are extragalactic in origin. And once you say, well, if they're outside of our galaxy, that means they're really, really far away. And then you can say, well, how powerful must this thing that is producing these really bright uh, radio bursts be? And they have to be amazingly powerful. And there's no good explanation of what these things are. We, we really don't know. And in, in good part, is because getting enough data is is really challenging. It's really challenging. It's only in the past couple of years that things are beginning to ramping up because now have, people have collected enough data that they haven't to know, they, they know where to look. And uh, eventually, you know, we will have enough information that we'll be able to describe them well. So what are some new techniques that are being either developed right now or have recently been developed and now more labs are using them? Um, let, me, let, me, let me do that specifically on my field because mm -hmm. that is a very broad question. Um, 
So in neutrino astrophysics, one of the most exciting things I know about, it's in a diff, it's like a different area than what I work, um, is uh, there's an experiment in Japan that's called Super Kamiokande. And Super Kamiokande is a gigantic neutrino detector full of water. It uses water to detect uh, neutrinos. And, and um, somebody more than a decade ago proposed that if you add a rare earth called gadolinium to the water, um, then this gadolinium could be used to enhance the detection of neutrinos in a specific way. And, uh, and this specific method would allow to study uh, old supernovae, specifically you know, the supernovae that are really, really far away. Um, in all galaxies, supernovas are coming off once in a while. In our own galaxy, it happens, say, every 50 years or something like that. It's a rare occurrence. But if you look at many, many galaxies combined, then there's always supernovas going off. So if you add all that up, it's a, it's a diffuse uh, neutrinos that are being produced by these supernovas. We combine all these supernovas together. So you're actually looking at the history of the universe added up all together in neutrinos wow. all the way back to the, you know, when these galaxies are, are you know, being formed. That's crazy and so exciting. And so this is being developed right now, and I think that's a fascinating technique. And, uh, and uh, you know, I hope they begin taking good data with that very soon. Can you tell me a little bit more about your science paper where you found an association with high-energy neutrinos and a blazar? Okay, let me, let me talk a little bit about my experiment, IceCube. IceCube is a neutrino telescope. And uh, neutrinos are electrically neutral, and they are very, very shy particles. They go through everything. So you know when you look at a pane of glass, it's transparent. And it is transparent because light doesn't interact with it. It just goes through. Um, neutrinos and matter, any matter, are exactly the same way. Everything is transparent to neutrinos. So uh, a pane of glass is transparent to, to light, but the whole planet is transparent to neutrinos. So a neutrino can go from one side of Earth to another. Now, if you take a pane of glass and you look at it a little bit sideways, then you see that there's actually a little bit of reflections. And if you see it edge on, then you see that there's like greenish tint typically. And that's because a little bit of light is being absorbed in the glass. So the glass is not perfectly transparent to, to light. A little bit of light goes through. The planet will be the same. The planet is transparent to neutrinos, but a few of them will interact in the planet. So, so how do you catch these neutrinos? You catch them by building a gigantic detector. And that's what we have done. We have built that detector that has a cubic kilometer in size. That's the size of a small mountain. And uh, we do it in Antarctica using uh, very transparent ice. Because when a neutrino interacts in, in the planet, which happens very rarely, um, it will produce another particle. And that other particle, when it travels through transparent material, it will produce a little bit of blue light. It's called Cherenkov radiation. So we have a gigantic array of optical sensors that look for a really brief flash of blue light, and that's how we find the neutrinos. So we have put this three-dimensional array of optical sensors deep in the Antarctic ice, right next to the South Polar Station, and we look for, we look for neutrinos. And uh, the objective is to do astrophysics with neutrinos. There are Many other things that IceCube can see, but the main objective is is to look for astrophysical neutrinos. Have you been to the actual telescope? I've, I've been there three times. In '99 was the first time. Last time was during the construction of IceCube, 
in 2006. So it's been a while since I've been there. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so I'm guessing astrophysicists and engineers have to work closely together because in a way your data depends on what equipment you have available and what telescope you're using. The relationship is not quite like that. We work very closely with engineers, but it's more on the construction of the device or the design of the device. Um, our optical sensors need to collect that light and then send it nor send it to the surface, and um, and and that works a little bit like an oscilloscope. So you have to define these design electronics uh, to digitize that information. And an engineer is usually better suited than a physicist at doing that. So we work really closely with them on designing that equipment. Also, to put the optical sensors deep in the Antarctic ice, we have to drill a hole. And we use that by injecting hot water and letting it go down by gravity. Wow. Then you have to take out the drill and then you have to lower the cable into the melted water hole um, with the optical sensors. And uh, um, we work closely with a lot of people that have drilling experience, for example, in oil fields mm. and uh, or people that have uh, experience in drilling in um, in glaciers when they, they want to do glaciology. Mm. Um, and, and there's a lot of people in engineering that, that know about that better than many physicists. For the data operations, actually, this is mostly run by physicists, but overwhelmingly. <laughs> and that is because... Um, the data that arrives just arrives at a computer cluster that is we have a south at South Pole. It's a small computer cluster, and and it's just data. And we know how to run computers, and we know how to you know use the data. That's that's not going to be a problem. What would you say has been the biggest or most influential finding in the past ten years for your specific field? Well, you, you asked me before about this science publication. That's it. So. Um, we have been looking for astrophysical neutrinos. And um, in, in IceCube, we see many other things besides astrophysical neutrinos. Overwhelmingly, what we see is not astrophysical neutrinos. Um, one of the things that we can see are atmospheric neutrinos, the neutrinos that are made at the top of the atmosphere, say 20 kilometers high. And um, the way to separate these atmospheric neutrinos from astrophysical ones are uh, is, is mostly due to energy. Atmospheric neutrinos have typically low energy, and astro astrophysical neutrinos, you find them with higher energy. So if you look at energies that are high enough, you should not see atmospheric neutrinos anymore. And that's what we have done. We, we have found astrophysical neutrinos. This is relatively old. This is from 2013 that we published that. Now, it was a, a bit of an interesting situation because we, have, we, we could say we have astrophysical neutrinos, but we cannot tell you where they are coming from. <laughs> just a bit embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> so you're back to where you were with cosmic rays. You know that they're coming from outside of the solar system, but that's about it. <laughs> so these papers that we published in Science um, about a year ago presents the first evidence for an astrophysical source. Wow. So what happens is that, and this is something that my group is, is very involved in, we now have a system that uses the computer cluster at South Pole to automatically find neutrinos that are interesting and that we think are likely to be astrophysical. We can still do a better job in the north offline and with a lot more computational power, but things are understood well enough now that we can do also that real time. And we have this real time system, and whenever it finds one of these astrophysical neutrinos, it sends the information via satellite to the north, and then that is distributed to all telescopes across the world. And this is a process that takes from the data being collected, being processed by the detector, analyzed by the computers, sent north via satellite and distributed. All that takes about 30 seconds in total. Wow. And, uh, and there are robotic 
instruments, robotic telescopes, uh, satellites in orbits that have uh, some sort of uh, instrumentation. It could be X-ray telescopes. It could be gamma-ray telescopes that operate in orbit. Um, they, when they have that information that we just got an neutron, they go and point in that direction to see if they see something else in gamma rays or X-rays or in the ground. It would be X-ray, uh, sorry, radio waves or anything like that. And so in September 2017, we sent one of these alerts, one of these neutrinos that we thought was astrophysical. And at the same time, then the two gamma ray instruments, one in orbit and one on the ground, um, also saw a blazer flaring in gamma rays at the same time that these neutrinos was being observed. And, uh, and, and a blazer is an active galaxy. An active galaxy is a large galaxy that has a supermassive black hole at the center. So in that sense, it is identical to our galaxy. The difference with an inactive galaxy is that the black hole is being fed material. Our black hole, the one in the center of our galaxy, is fairly quiet. Nothing is going into that black hole. But then this, is, this supermassive black hole at the center of this galaxy has an accretion disk, material that is spiraling into the black hole. And whenever you have that situation, you can get jets that are getting emitted out of the black hole along the axis of rotation of the black hole. And if one of these jets points towards us, that is called a blazer. So a blazer is one of these active galaxies that has a jet pointing toward us. And uh, when we study jets in active galaxies, then um, we believe that these are places where you expect cosmic rays to be produced and neutrinos to be produced, and uh, there are other high-energy processes going on. So it is not a surprise to find uh, um, that a high-energy neutrino, an astrophysical neutrino, is coincident with a flaring gamma rays. You expect those things to go together. And um, so not only we did that, that was one science publication, but the other one is that we said, oh, let's look into that specific blazer in the data that we have archived. We have data from, our, even though we call it a neutrino telescope, we can look in all directions all the time. Mm. Uh, we don't have to point. So we could go back and look at our data in that specific direction in the past. And we found evidence for a neutrino flare. There were 13 neutrinos coming together in between, I think it's October 2014 and March 2015. So there's a neutrino flare that lasts a little bit less than six months. And uh, that was also, you know, significant enough that we, you know, put it into, into a second science publication last year. I would say that that's definitely the, the highlight of, of my field for, for, for quite a while. That's very exciting that you were part of that. So <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. And so um, for the next decade, do you predict that the field of astrophysics is going to focus on the same thing, just keep collecting data and keep finding the sources? Or do you think we should shift to another another type of cosmic energy, or what do you think? Also another great question. Um, so we're living in, in an era in which uh, multi-messenger astrophysics is, is being created, revitalized, um, besides ice cubes revolutionizing using neutrinos with, for, to study the very high energy universe. There's also LIGO and Virgo that have detected gravitational waves, and gravitational waves are, again, another messenger that are just not light. And uh, this new field of multi-messenger astrophysics searches to um, join gravitational waves and neutrinos and light, light in gen generalized sense from radio to gamma rays, to put all that information together 
to give a better description of of the universe. So that that is over the ten years going to be, I'm sure, very strong. There's so going to be a lot of effort into uh, people talking to each other to combine the data better, and also individual instruments like gravitational wave observatories getting better or neutrino instruments to get better as well. So more more of a collective analysis rather than individual. That is one of the directions in which we're going. Why would you say space exploration is important? That's a complicated question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let me answer this way. Space exploration is driven by curiosity, which is the same drive that we have for science and many other activities, I mean, many other human activities. And uh, the payoff of a space exploration is not necessarily direct help to humanity, though clearly space has helped humanity if you have, you know, telecommunications and GPS and all that. Um, but there's curiosity that drives the, that area by itself. So, so putting a, a person on the moon doesn't necessarily directly help humanity. That's not the objective. But that's not why it is done. Just out of curiosity, do you think in my time there will be a commercial flight <laughs> available to space? Oh, I think a SpaceX is doing quite well in that respect, and they, and, and they also have competitors. They have um, Blue Origin and, uh, and a few others. I think, I think it's very likely that within 10 years we will have commercial flights. Now, whether you or I will be able to afford it, that's a different <laughs> question. Um, so I believe a Soyuz a space, a, a space flight, uh, I think the price is about $80 million or something wow, like that. Wow, okay, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they have these, these new techniques that they're using for rockets to save money, and they have been really successful in, in cutting the price. But it's still, it's not $80 million, it's only $30 million. Okay. Oh, okay, much better. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's a shame because space really fascinates me, and I would love to be able uh -huh. to see it with my own eyes. Uh -huh. Last but not least... What would be your advice to younger researchers looking to get in, into the field? If you have the passion, you want to do it, and you will just do it because you love it. I think you do science only because you have passion and curiosity and are, are, are very interested. As a scientist, you, you make a good living, but there, there are careers that are, you know, that will pay more if that's what you're interested in. For sure. Um, so now, now that you have decided to be a physicist or to be an astrophysicist, just, you know, work hard and, and work smart. Reading publications on a regular basis, get into a habit of that. It, it's really important to begin to do um, as soon as you get into grad school and um, keeping your mind open about possibilities. Uh, the majority of physicists end up changing what field they want to work on at some point or another, typically during their PhD uh, studies, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, because there's so many fascinating things to study that that's not a big that's not a big deal. Um, I think people when they're academically younger they get fixated on I want to study this specific problem and uh, almost never it works that way. Yeah, this is really fun. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It was a great conversation and I really Thank enjoyed you so much. it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter, and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time!